Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Region 5 RTAC and the Georgia Trauma Commission. As part of the State of Georgia's trauma system, EMS Region 5's Regional Trauma Advisory Committee works to improve trauma outcomes in Central Georgia. The RTAC is composed of EMS agencies, participating hospitals, trauma system stakeholders, and members of the public. Good morning, Misa. How are you today? Hi, Lisa. Here we are again. Here we are again. Episode three of our special population series sponsored by the Region 5 RTAC. And we are talking today about bariatric patients. Now, when you first told me this was going to be one of our special populations, I nodded and smiled and said, great, that's great. And then I had to go Google what bariatric meant. And that's a huge accomplishment for a girl with a vocabulary like yours. Like, <laughs> I never get to stump you. So. <laughs> What did, what did you find when you Googled it? I found uh, that the etymology of the word is actually pretty recent. Um, it wasn't really coined until 1960, which I found in and of itself very interesting. And telling. Yes, it has a Greek root. I'm not going to pull it up right now, but it has a Greek root. Uh, I believe it was buried, something, I don't know, whatever. Um, and atric, of course, is a descriptor. Um, so it means uh, overweight. Um, and it was specifically applied in 1960, I believe, as a, a term to describe patients that uh, do, uh, do not have ideal body weight or who are not average weighted patients. That's right. So our special population series, just as a reminder, it focuses on these vulnerable groups that require modifications to the standard trauma assessment and intervention. So that's, we, that will be the majority of what we discuss is how you would modify your trauma assessment and interventions, in this case for bariatrics. I know this is something that we've kind of wanted to talk about on the podcast before, so we're going to um, approach this episode specifically with an educational purpose in mind to talk about trauma and bariatric patients, but we may revisit um, some of the more, um, um, I don't know, emotional or um, um, sociological considerations that um, one should uh, have when they deal with uh, patients who are bariatric from sort of other angles. But we can talk about yeah. that later. We also tossed around the idea of having an episode about why nurses tend to be overweight. That's true. So we may, uh, we may revisit these things um, in coming from a place of love and education, of course, and yeah. not uh, criticism and or body shaming. Following under the taboo topic because people don't talk about it. It's very, very true. Okay, so let's get to uh, bariatrics in trauma. Um, so we've already defined it. Um, what do you mean by bariatrics, at least in terms of um, uh, statistics or official definitions of it? Right, so the World Health Organization says that um, someone who has a body mass index of greater than 25% would be considered overweight. Uh, if it's greater than 30%, then now you are considered obese. If it's greater than 40%, you're considered morbidly obese. And one thing that I found interesting is bariatric population also includes those patients who are status post-bariatric surgery. 
um, whether it has been successful or failed, they are considered in the bariatric population as well. So bariatric surgery, just so that I am sure I know what you're talking about, is something like gastric bypass. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's one example of a bariatric surgery. Yeah. Are there other bariatric surgeries? Yes. Yes. Sleeves and Ruin Y would be the, the older one. There are a lot of, a lot of options for bariatric surgery. Um, one kind of horrifying fact that I found um, in the research is uh, it's, it's not news to us that a third of the children in the U.S. are in the overweight, obese category, although that is a terrible finding. Um, but now they are considering bariatric surgery for children and adolescents in the most extreme cases. I kind of found that shocking and disappointing, sad. Yes, that, yes, that's um, complicated. Yeah. And just, just a little ta- uh, thought about the U.S. Um, I saw an interview on TV the other day where they were asking people from around the world, when we talk about Americans, what do you think? Like, what do you instantly go to? And the two things they come at, came up with were loud and fat. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That's yeah, so here's our legacy. Um, <laughs> but I will say that there are a number of countries who are right behind us. Um, obesity is becoming a worldwide health uh, epidemic. Of course, we know in the U.S. it's it's out of control. Which is also um, ironic and sad considering that another worldwide um, problem is starvation. Yes. That is true. So, that is true. all right, let's move on to uh, to trauma, specifically to trauma, um, and uh, and see what it is that we need to do or that you need to do in the ER um, when assessing a bariatric patient who comes into the hospital um, after some sort of trauma. So, the first thing we talked about in our other episodes in this series was the epidemiology of that special population. What is it we need to consider with bariatric patients? So uh, being bariatric doesn't actually predispose you to any different mechanisms than the, um, the regular population. So MVCs is number one for bariatrics along with um, average weight of people. And, and actually most demographics, MVC is going to be number one. Uh, I will say, though, that um, there is decreased seatbelt use in the bariatric population. It's too tight and uncomfortable, or it doesn't fit at all. And so uh, unable or unwilling to use it. Um, Another really interesting thing that I found is because um, folks with higher BMIs are prone to sleep apnea, it causes daytime drowsiness. And so there's a really high percentage of drowsy while driving collisions. In fact, you are 243% higher risk um, if you have sleep apnea. Wow, that is an incredible number. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, you hear people fall, fall asleep at the wheel or whatever, but I had no idea and did not consider that Wow. Um, before this research. So yeah, very interesting to know. Okay, so you said MVC's motor vehicle collisions was the number one cause. Um, I remember in uh, pregnancy, we dealt with um, falls and also um, uh, domestic, uh, uh, domestic abuse. Are those the sorts of things that also affect bariatric patients or are there other higher risk factors? So there are other mechanisms would be comparable with average weighted people of their okay. same age. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. But there are more complications to um, motor vehicle collisions because uh, the seat belts um, and sleep apnea um, issues make things more complicated. Okay, cool. Exactly. So I know that being overweight is in and of itself unhealthy. 
but what other um what other side effects i guess um mm -hmm. of being overweight it could be like pre-existing conditions that you might have to consider when you're facing a bariatric patient yeah so it does cause kind of a domino effect and so often we find um bariatric patients and, and the longer that they have the excess weight the the more of these pre-existing conditions that they will have so hypertension uh hyperlipidemia the obstructive sleep apnea that we mentioned oftentimes diabetes some cardiac issues um and then they're going to take medications to modify those if they're seeing a physician and so it used to be that we would teach people to look for these medications in the geriatric population but we've actually had to remove that qualifier because so many of our of, of our young obese patients are also on things like beta blockers and calcium channel blockers and even anticoagulants. So these are medications that either mask some of the symptoms that we're looking for in the trauma bay, like tachycardia and hypotension, or they complicate their injuries, like with an anticoagulation, that's going to make the injuries much more severe if they... Um, if their bleeding times or their clotting times have been reduced. So we used to say, keep an eye out on that in your geriatric patients, but now we have to consider it on um, even our younger patients who happen to, to be obese because of this sequela. Okay. <laughs> that's a good word. That's, that's the vocabulary word for the day. So now that we know what's um, preexisting conditions, you now have a bariatric patient who has presented uh, himself or herself in your in your hospital, how is it different from an average weight patient? So like, what's the first thing? What do you do that's different? So if you have a bariatric patient who has some significant injuries from this trauma, they are at increased risk for complications. So these are complications that every patient is at risk for, but theirs is an increased amount. So this is ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome. They have an increased in, uh, rate of infection, they have increased hematological complications, specifically pulmonary embolism and deep vein thrombosis, PEDBT, um, and they have a higher risk for decubitus ulcers, which what all of this means is they're going to stay in the hospital longer, have more ICU days, and ultimately a higher morbidity and mortality overall. Okay. So like when you say something like increased infections, I'm thinking that's a downstream effect that, you know, right now you're in the emergency room and you're trying to treat this patient in the moment and keep them compatible with life so that they can move down the hospital chain to someone who can take care of more long-term care. What is it you're doing with a bariatric patient in anticipation of their potential increased infection rate down the line? Wow, that's a really good question. So you're right. It is something that an ER nurse or a flight nurse is going to pass off to a med surge nurse or an ICU nurse who's going to have to deal with it later. Um, but we do a lot of things in the trauma bay to, uh, to assist with that downstream effect. So a lot of the ways that we handle our airway and our breathing, we're going to be doing things that are going to present, uh, prevent what's called ventilator-acquired pneumonia. That's a downstream effect that we're not going to see in the trauma bay. Uh, getting them off that long spine board quickly, um, making sure that we reposition them when their C-spine is cleared, that's going to prevent some decubitus ulcers. Again, we're not going to see them in the trauma bay. That's going to be some days later. Uh, and then if they have open wounds or, um, or even open fractures, we will give antibiotics in the trauma bay. We will give tetanus in the trauma bay. 
So yeah, there's a lot of steps that we will take in the uh, immediate um, treatment that hopefully will impact them days later and, and prevent some of these difficult complications. Okay. And then this might be a sidebar that you might want to cut out later, but what about some other practical considerations? Do you need more people in the ER to help turn the patient? Do you need more space? Do you require extra, do you require anything extra in order to accommodate somebody who is uh, larger than an average patient, much larger than an average patient, much heavier? So one of the things is you need an accurate weight, and that's true of any patient, but particularly true of these patients. Nurses pride themselves on being able to sort of do that carnival game where we can guess your weight, and we're pretty good, but the evidence shows that the patient is actually better, especially in the bariatric population. It's much harder to sort of estimate a weight on a bariatric patient. And so if you're able to, just ask the patient, and they're they're probably not going to be right on, and they may even shave off a little bit, that's okay. They're going to still be closer than the nurse in 60% of the cases. Um, You're definitely going to need additional staff. You're definitely going to need different equipment, properly sized and appropriate equipment. You need to know the weight limit of your stretchers and your beds. Um, And when you're moving these patients, you will want to, uh, to get the appropriate amount of staff. So this is where nurses hurt their backs. We do it repeatedly, moving patients, even just average size patients, without the appropriate um, either equipment or staff, number of staff. Um, in a bariatric patient, it's really important, both for them because they their skin is at risk for shearing and tearing, but also for the staff members themselves for, for your own back safety. Got it. Okay, great. All right, so that's... Is that everything in terms of epidemiology we should be worrying about right now? Can we move on to assessment, which I know is the next step? Yeah, let's start at the airway. So there are a number of airway considerations in the bariatric population. So gaining access to that airway, specifically down to the uh, the vocal cords, uh, and the patency of the airway is often compromised because they have so much excess chin and face and neck tissue. And so that's that's a concern. Uh, these patients also have pre-existing condition of GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease. So that means they are at higher risk for aspiration and vomiting. And if we can prevent that, that's what we're talking about, preventing those um, pneumonias those uh, from aspiration. Um, an obese patient is automatically, should automatically be considered a difficult airway. You know, they are heaven criteria positive. Oh, that's right. So climbing the airway to heaven, that's our episode 24, where we talked to David Overa about how to assess differently in the ER from the lemon criteria. I remember that. That was a couple episodes ago. Yeah. So if you are a, a, a critical care nurse who's not familiar with the heaven criteria, go and check out that episode. You're going to love it. And uh, Heaven Criteria teaches us that a, a bariatric patient is is, a di- is going to be a difficult airway. Right. And if you want a little bit more information, go to the QWordPodcast.com where you can uh, go to the episode 24 uh, hyperlink and get a badge card template that you can put on your lanyard, um, which will uh, spell out the mnemonic for you for Heaven so that you would know how to use it. That's right. Yeah, we forgot to mention that we have that badge card. Um, it's a great resource that Dave um let us share with everyone. 
So when you when you identify that this is going to be a difficult airway, whether it's a bariatric patient or not, some of the interventions that you're going to take or some of the, I guess, the prevention that you're going to take is um, you want this patient in reverse Trendelenburg position. Um, you want to have a bougie available. So first pass success is much higher with a bougie in a difficult airway. You want to also have some other airway options if you're unable to pass the ET tube. So something like an eye gel or an LMA or a um, King airway, whatever your facility has, needs to be on hand and readily available in case this goes sideways. Video laryngoscopy is the best um, first attempt. And you want the provider with the most success in difficult airways to be the one who steps up to do this airway. Um, I would probably also have anesthesia on speed dial and be ready. Uh, these patients, the bariatric population, will desap much faster than an average weighted patient. So the uh, evidence shows us that you have about one minute before they start to drop their saturations, whereas an average weighted patient, it's like six minutes. Wow, geez, again, that's crazy. So you're talking about you're talking about air supply. You're talking about. You're talking about episode 15, getting air supply out of nothing at all. Wow, we are cross-populating uh, all over the place. Look at us, cross-promoting. Cross yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, so one of the ways to buy yourself extra time in any patient, but it's really key in the bariatric population, is to provide them with pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation. So pop that nasal cannula on at 10 liters or so. Um, if you need to know more details about that, we have a whole episode on it. Pre-oxygenation, apneic oxygenation is really clutch in this population for their airway, um, um, for intubation attempts. Awesome. Okay, so let's say that this difficult airway has gone worst case scenario and we're going to have to cut their neck. Your provider is performing a bedside surgical crike. It's very rare. It's a very bad day. But usually in those crike kits, you have a little shyly um, uh, trach tube in a patient with a lot of neck adipose tissue, that trach tube is not going to be long enough. So plan on having probably like a 6.0 or 6.5 ET tube that's going to go in because you'll need the longer length. Mm, okay. All right. That makes sense. Now, when you're preparing your RSI drugs for a bariatric patient, um, there are three different weights to consider. Okay. So let me ask you. I'm assuming you will... You will dose them based on how much they actually weigh that it's it that you take figure out what their weight is you've asked them they say they weigh 280 pounds that's your baseline determiner am i right right so we will first of all we're going to put it in kilograms because that's how we roll in the medical world but secondly um some medications are <laughs> i do like based... my weight better in kilograms <laughs> yes <laughs> oh my gosh i'm so skinny um so um, there are some drugs that we waste uh, that we dose on total body weight, and that would be succinylcholine, which is our depolarizing paralytic medication. Um, other medications you want to use their ideal body weight, so you would actually need to know their height. Um, that would be rocuronium or vecuronium, our non-depolarizing paralytics. Okay. Uh, there's a formula to get to that ideal body weight. We'll put it on the um, on the website in the show notes. And then there's actually. Do I want to process my own body weight through that formula and see whether or not I hit the mark? Um, Should I be kind to myself or honest with myself? It's a it's an eye opener, I'll say. Dang it! 
it's it's yeah um the third there's actually a third weight and that is called our lean body weight and that um that takes into account your ideal body weight and your fat mass and again that's a formula it will be on the website and that medication the, those medications that you will use the lean body weight would be your automate or your ketamine those are your induction agents so this is not something that I see a whole lot in practice. We do use ideal body weight on a lot of medications in the, um, in the pre-hospital environment, especially when we're doing vent settings. But I haven't seen this in practice. But I think as the population gets bigger and bigger, you will see more of ideal versus total because different medications have different uh, metabolizing mechanisms. And so I think you'll see, I think this is something a trend that we're going to see more of. Okay. All right. Very interesting. Okay. So that was the A. Now we're so, going to B for breathing. Right. So we've got our patient successfully um, intubated, hopefully. Know that your breath sounds may be muffled due to the amount of tissue, just like chest tissue that you have. So those lungs are a little bit further away from your stethoscope. So they may be muffled as a baseline. These patients will also have decreased pulmonary function at baseline. And so some of those medications that we give them, opioids or benzos um, or continuous sedation medication, they will be more sensitive to them. And so really, really, really monitor them closely. I would say start low um, and go slow. The other thing to know as we were talking about medications and metabolism uh, benzodiazepines, propofol, and fentanyl, which are some of our favorite drugs in um, post-intubation patients, they are all lipophilic. So they are absorbed into the adipose tissue and will release um, slowly and less predictably. So um, all of a sudden your patient takes a turn, it's maybe because all of that medicine is starting to hit. So very, very careful, titrate to effect and monitor them closely. They may not need as much as you think they do. Okay. Their um, diaphragm position is a little bit altered because of their weight, and so it can make them really difficult to bag. And so positioning like that reverse Trendelenburg is good. It helps to get that adipose tissue off of their lungs. And then also using two people to hold that seal on so you get a really nice tight seal is uh, not uncommon. Um, we mentioned this earlier with the driving while drowsy, that obstructive sleep apnea. When you lay a patient with obstructive sleep apnea flat, they are going to, um, they're going to desat. So reposition them in that reverse Trendelenburg or also consider maybe BiPAP or CPAP on these patients. Ask them if they wear it at night for sure. Um, and then once you get their C-spine cleared, once you can get the C-collar off, or even just get them off the long spine board, then you can turn them into left lateral recumbent. Oh, that's the same thing we talked about uh, for our, our, our pregnant population as well, right? Yeah, that was, that's right. That's to protect the baby. Okay, I understand that for pregnant women, it's to protect the baby, but what is, what's the case for bariatric patients? It's really, really basically the same reason. So you're protecting the baby by moving the baby off of the vena cava so the mom can get good venous return. In this case, we're moving the panis off of the lungs and the vena cava by turning the patient to their side. Okay, so it's not as much about protecting the baby in pregnant population is more of a side effect of protecting the breathing apparatus in the mother. The circulation. The circulation, okay. 
The vena okay. cava. Yep. All right, cool. Got it, got it, got it. All right. All right, so that leads us right into circulation. Of course it does. Look at that. Beautiful. <laughs> so, All right. so wait, I, I already understand that for overweight patients, there's already an issue for overweight people. There's already a problem with, with pressure on the heart because it takes a lot more uh, effort to pump blood through all of that extra adipose tissue. So what does that do in terms of how you manifest a trauma, a bariatric trauma patient? Yeah. How so the heart one? is a, yeah, the heart is a muscle and you're a runner, you know, the more you use your muscles, the the bigger and stronger they become. In this case, the heart gets bigger, but it's less effective. It becomes kind of floppy, um, but it's working so hard that it actually does get bigger. Uh, this is not a desirable thing. This is the one muscle you don't want to be bigger. So it becomes less efficient. So when you are resuscitating your patient with fluids and uh, with fluid and blood, you need to monitor them closely because they may not tolerate it. That floppy heart may not be able to take those liters of fluid and, and units of blood that you're giving them. So watch them closely. Assume that they have a cardiac compromise. Um, one aspect of circulation is intervention is to get vascular access quickly so that we can give those fluids and medications that we talked about. Vas vascular access can be really difficult in a bariatric patient because when we're trying to put an IV in, we do it first by sight and then by touch, by feeling the vein. Um, if there's a lot of adipose tissue there, both of those things may be taken away. So I love to go right in the crease because there's not a lot of adipose tissue in the crease. That doesn't always work. Um, if that fails, then the next option is to use an ultrasound or then to go interosseous. Well, that so that leads to, that makes me think about blood pressure cuffs. If you uh, have very thick arms with a lot of adipose tissue, do blood pressure cuffs always accommodate those? I would think that there's a size problem. Yeah. So we do have varied size, uh, blood pressure cuffs and we do have some, some larger ones and we do have some even that are designed to go on the leg. Like for instance, if a trauma patient has uh, bilateral injuries to their arms, it can go on the legs, but you can actually put a regular size blood pressure cuff on a forearm. Uh, just make sure that when you do that, it should be midway between the elbow and the wrist and know that your pressures may be a touch higher than actual just oh. a touch but the, yeah they may not reflect as accurately as if it were on the upper arm okay all right any other considerations in circulation for bariatric patients yeah so for resuscitating if your patients um uh if your patient is a burn patient that's their trauma they may require more fluid resuscitation than an average weight person so you're going to titrate this to urine output so you'll need a foley catheter but you also want to get your burn center involved pretty early and let them know that you have a bariatric patient okay, with a burn. Okay. Okay. So in the ABCDs, we're going to skip D and go right on to E. What were you going to say? No. There's, there's really no difference in the disability part. So we'll skip to E, which is exposure and environment. There's a couple of things to keep in mind. Um, it is important to cut all of their clothes off, just like with every other trauma patient. We want them trauma naked and trauma warm. Um, so make sure that you're covering them with an appropriate sized gown. Make sure that you are keeping their modesty. And then as far as environmental factors go, uh, adipose tissue acts like an insulator, which is, um, it's okay in cold temperatures, but when um, bariatric patients get overheated, they... Um, they don't tolerate it well. 
So the extra adipose tissue, that breathing difficulty that we talked about, they, when they are put into a metabolic state, they can't match the work of breathing for a heat exposure. So um, be very vigilant when you have a bariatric trauma patient who has been overheated. All right. Very helpful. Got any pearls of wisdom to throw away? Anything that isn't um, expressly covered by what we've just discussed? Yeah. So if, uh, if you get to the point where your bariatric patient requires an NG tube, a nasogastric tube, or an orogastric tube, if they have a history of bariatric surgery, it is contraindicated. So that semi-flexible tube can cause those stitches or those staples to um, evolve. So if your patient has a history of bariatric surgery, uh, they still need one, but you'll need to have it inserted under fluoroscopy okay. so that it can be done safely and won't impact the stitches or the staples. Okay. Okay. When you are preparing to send your patient to the CT scanner, make sure that before you do that, you know the weight limit of the CT table and also the girth limit. So sometimes you may have someone who doesn't weigh all that much. They, they fit in with the, the, um, the weight limit, but because they're short and the way that their weight is distributed, the girth won't fit into the CT scanner. So you need to know both of those. What is the weight limit and what is the girth limit? And in that case, if your patient cannot go to the CT scanner, what is your facility's plan B? Is there another option? Okay. To get them the, the, um, yeah, the scans that they need, that they require. Um, if you are transferring your bariatric patient to another facility, a specialty facility, a trauma center, whatever, uh, it's really important in report that they are prepared for a bariatric patient. They may need to get a specialty bed. They may need to have uh, gather those special equipment that we talked about, this, this appropriate size gowns, cuffs, etc. What about you as a helicopter, uh, as an air flight nurse, do you need to know the weight of the patient before? I would, I'm guessing yes, but do you have weight limits in your helicopter? Yeah, absolutely. We have weight limits. So we will need a, a good weight on that patient. Um, sometimes if they're too large, we're unable to fly them. Uh, similarly, on a ground ambulance, they have stretchers there. They do have a bariatric stretcher. So let them know ahead of time if they need to, to go and trade out and bring that bariatric stretcher. So whatever mode of transport they're going with, uh, even in a fixed wing, a fixed wing doesn't have a, an actual weight limit, but there is a girth limit to the seatbelt that they have to be in. So yeah, those are all pieces of information that you will need to know for transporting them to a different level of care. And then for our bariatric population, there is a dignity issue. Um, these folks have been discriminated against, not just out in the world, but likely in previous healthcare settings as well. So um, they've been embarrassed before and you want to be sensitive to that fact. Uh, so protect their privacy and their modesty. Keep them covered. Uh, be careful of the terminology that you're using. So, for instance, um, I was mentioning an appropriate sized gown and and a, and a different bariatric bed. Sometimes we colloquially call them a big boy gown or a big girl bed. That's not something that your patient should ever hear you say. So just be careful about the terminology that you're using. And then pay attention to the nonverbal communication that your patient is showing you. That will guide you. Um, and kind of tip you into their body consciousness. Okay. All right. Great. So let's talk about the worst case scenario. You have a bariatric patient that's coded. Um, what do you do differently? I'm assuming uh, more drugs, more electricity. You, it's a bigger patient, yeah, it's so you have to throw more stuff at the patient to bring them back. 
It's a great question, and you would think that maybe yes, but actually if your bariatric patient codes, there are no modifications per the American Heart Association to either um, basic life support or advanced cardiac life support. You do recommend a biphasic defibrillator, which is recommended for everyone, uh, but there's no need to increase your energy levels, no need to use any larger pads than the typical adult pads, and no need to make any changes to the algorithm. In terms of quality chest compressions, um, would this be one of the situations that you do recommend um, getting on top of the patient in order to, if there's a lot more adipose tissue, to make sure that the pressure is correct? Nothing like that? Yeah, there, that would be a challenge to get the correct depth. And also, um, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but there are some devices, automated compression devices, and they also have a girth limit. And so sometimes the patient will not fit into those automated devices. So you would have to do manual compressions on them. Um, and that can be a challenge. That's true. Okay. All right. So I'm a 97 pound um, uh, young resident versus a 180 to 210 pounds, um, all right, let's say also young resident, perhaps the 200 and the 210 pound residents should be the one giving the chest compressions because they're more likely to provide, uh, get a deeper depth. Uh, no? Yes? I mean, I, I don't know if that 97-year-old chick works out. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. But I would say if you're the, if you're the team lead, I would say it, uh, in a code on a bariatric patient, you should probably monitor the quality of compressions because it is going to be challenging. And maybe, you know, we, we trade out every two minutes. It might require more frequent trade outs. Got it. Okay. All right. Just to make sure you can keep those compressions going deep enough and High strong quality. enough. Yep. Got it. Excellent. Excellent. So now we have talked about our bariatric patients, our third, our third population. That's right. There's a lot of good information in here. Yeah. I hope that, uh, I hope that everyone picked up a thing or two. I know in researching this, I definitely did. Well, check out the keywordpodcast.com where we will definitely throw those formulas up for ideal body weight, total body weight, and what was the other one? Lean body weight. Lean body weight. That's right. Um, the things that I don't know if I want to know about myself. Um, <laughs> but in this, it, 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 in order to be a forward-thinking woman, yes, I'm going to find this stuff out because it's not about body shaming. It is about being happy and healthy. healthy. Absolutely. Thank you for this, Nisa. Let's meet again to talk about our final population. Geriatrics. Geriatric special population. Until then. Stay healthy. Bye.